Every year when we honor our graduates, I feel a particular sense of pastoral longing for them. I want you who are graduating to know that your church loves you. And I realize that for many of you, this will be a time of transition in your lives. And uh, some may not be attending New Covenant as often in the future as they have in the past. And we take seriously the stewardship that God has given us over your lives in your formative years. I want you to know that pastoral care has a lifetime warranty at New Covenant Bible Church. And if you ever find yourself needing someone to pray with, uh, someone to talk to while you're away at college or even 10 years from now, and you think of your home church, you can always call on us and you will always have a family here that warmly welcomes you and loves you. So we celebrate this transition in your lives and we want you to know you're always going to be at home here at New Covenant. And I want to preach to you today as if it were the last sermon you're going to ever hear at New Covenant Bible Church. And that's for all of us. And by that, I don't mean that I'm going to be swinging for the fences and trying to hit a grand slam in my preaching today because that's a sure recipe for failure. But what I do mean is that I want to preach to you a message that I hope captures the essence of what we're all about here at New Covenant Bible Church. I hope that this message distills down to its most basic elements the message that you've been hearing in this church through the years. And we never know, this could be the last Sunday any of us hears a sermon preached at this church. It could be the last time I have the opportunity to preach. And so the, the text before us today is, is one of these golden texts. It's like a, a diamond in Scripture. It's, it's one of the most uh, powerful, like, crown jewels of the gospel. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We'd be hard-pressed to find a more cogent summary of the gospel than we have here in this passage and, and just as way of review, in verses 1 through 3, two weeks ago, we peered into the abysmal depths of our misery apart from Christ. Then last week in verses 4 through 7, we soared into the awesome heights of God's mercy toward us in Christ. And what we're going to look at here today in verses 8 through 10 is the amazing grace that makes all of this possible. It's an amazing grace that frees us from boasting and fuels us with a passion to live wholeheartedly for Jesus in all that we do. So let's read this passage aloud together. We're going to put it on the screen. It's one that if you were in Awana as a child, surely you learned this verse these, this passage and memorize these verses, and it's a great one to take to heart and to uh, cherish for the rest of our lives. Ephesians 2, verse 8, let's read together. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. At the heart of this passage is the phrase at the end of verse 9, so that no one can boast. That's what this passage is aiming at, to eliminate, to annihilate all boasting. 
Paul is making a claim here that believers in Jesus have absolutely zero grounds for boasting. And he supports that claim with two strong pillars, each of which begin with the conjunction for. But before we look at these two reasons why the gospel annihilates boasting, we need to go a little bit deeper to understand what Paul means by boasting. Because usually when we think about boasting, we think about someone who brags a lot. They're always talking about how great they are and how superior they are to other people and, and, and their accomplishments and the like. And, and we just kind of have a visceral reaction against braggarts. We don't like people who are like that. And so all of us kind of try to push the mute button on our boasting and our bragging. We try to be a little bit more subtle. But that doesn't mean that some of us don't struggle with boasting. The truth is, everyone boasts. Everyone does. Life apart from Jesus is an endless, exhausting treadmill of boasting. Because boasting isn't just about bragging. Boasting is about where you find your hope, your confidence. It's about what gives you the courage to face hard things in life. It's what makes you feel, I can do this. I'm worthy. I have value. We're all looking for something that we can be proud of. Something that gives us a sense of value and worth and strength. It makes us feel deep down, I matter. I'm not a loser. I belong. Some people do this through their athletic victories. This is what makes them think they're significant. Others, it's through their academic performance. They're smart and so they try really hard to get good grades. Many people try to boast through their career and through their financial prosperity. Others through their morality or their religious devotion. We all do it in a lot of different ways. We're always scrambling to prove ourselves. I'm significant. I have value. And we scramble to prove ourselves through our achievements and through our acquisitions, and through our performance, and it's never good enough. You can never get off that treadmill. So God speaks to our boasting in Jeremiah chapter 9, and this is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. This should not be where we're finding our sense of value, of worth, of identity. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So what is it about the gospel that frees us, that releases us from this endless treadmill that's so exhausting of finding our significance in our wealth, our wisdom, our strength, our accomplishments? What is it about the gospel that annihilates boasting? Well, Paul gives us two reasons the gospel eliminates all boasting in this text. And both of them are identified by that word for. The first is in verse 8. 
The second is in verse 10. First, in verse 8, we're going to see that the gospel eliminates boasting because before we were saved, everything we needed to be brought into a right relationship with God, it was all a gift from God. Therefore, there's no reason for boasting. And the second thing we're going to see is in verse 10, that the gospel eliminates boasting because after we're saved, everything we need to do to live for God, a life that's pleasing to him, all those good works, they are a creation of God. So because of God's gift to us, leading us to salvation, and because of God's creative work in us, after we're saved, we have zero grounds for boasting. Let's break down each of these two points. Number one, we have zero grounds for boasting because everything we needed to be saved by God was a gift from God. We see that in verses 8 and 9. Three key words that you must understand in verse 8. Saved, grace, and faith. We saw last week that being saved is about much more than simply being forgiven of your sins. Being saved means that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Being saved means that when we were in captivity to the world, to the flesh and the devil, just following the current of this world and its rebellion and opposition to God, God released us from our captivity and he exalted us to be seated with Christ at his right hand where he has all dominion over sin and over Satan and over death. And being saved, we saw last week, means that when we were deserving of God's eternal wrath, God instead decided to shower us with his kindness for all eternity. That's what being saved means. And then this word grace. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved kindness. But it's more than that. It's God's undeserved kindness in the face of our much-deserved wrath. Grace isn't only God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace is also God giving us the very opposite of what we do deserve. We did everything we could to demerit God's favor, but God shows us his lavish kindness and his goodness for all eternity despite everything we've done to spurn him. That's grace. And then the third word, faith. What is faith? It's coming to God empty-handed and trusting and resting completely in the promise and provision that he has made in Jesus Christ. Faith is believing the truth about who Jesus is, but it's more than simply acknowledging the truth about who he is. It's also trusting in Jesus. It's resting in him. It's relying completely on him. So, so faith is not anything about ourselves. Faith is actually magnifying God's grace by trusting completely in the Savior that he has provided. As Spurgeon says, grace is the fountain of our salvation, but faith is the aqueduct through which the flood of mercy flows down to refresh us. Grace is the fountain Faith is the aqueduct through which that grace flows. 
So children, you have a fill-in-the-blanks question on your worksheets this morning. Let's let all the adults in on this question and see how well we do on this little quiz. We are saved by blank alone, through blank, in blank alone. How do we fill in those blanks? All right, children, are you ready with your pencils and pens? Let's take the first one. We are saved by... Grace alone. That's right. It's God's grace alone that saves us. It's purely his undeserved kindness in the face of our much-deserved wrath. All right? We are saved by grace alone through blank. Through faith. That's right. Faith is the aqueduct. Or you might think of it this way. When you get a, a shot of medicine, the doctor uses a syringe Faith is like the syringe through which the medicine of God's grace flows to us. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith, in Christ alone. That's right. It is not faith that saves you. Jesus Christ saves you. You can't just say, well, I, I have a vague belief in God. Or make up a God of your own imagination. The faith that saves is faith in the Savior whom God has appointed to be the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You must place your trust in him. And te technically speaking, it's not even faith in Christ that saves you. It's Jesus Christ who saves you through faith. It's not the act of faith or the attitude of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith, the one whom you're putting your faith in, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He's the one who does the work. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And Paul wants us to be ever so clear in verse 8, this is not from yourselves. <laughs> What's not from ourselves? Is he talking about the faith? That's not from ourselves? Or is he talking about the grace? That's not from ourselves. Well, the best answer to that question is it's all of the above. Your salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ came entirely from outside you. Your salvation was not a joint purchase in which God contributed grace and you contributed faith and together you cooperated in saving yourself. No, none of this originated with you. You did not prompt God to save you. You did not move God to be gracious to you. You did not come up with the faith to trust in Christ. You were dead. You couldn't do any of that. No, it is, Paul says at the end of verse 8, it is God's gift. All of this, salvation, by grace, through faith in Jesus, it's all the gift of God, not from works. Salvation is not a reward for any of our religious deeds. There's no room for human contribution. Nothing we can do with our hands or our feet, like going to church or reading our Bibles or giving money to the poor, none of that can save us. It's so important for us to understand this because if salvation were by works, all of us have already failed miserably. How many of us would want to stand before a holy God who knows all our thoughts, 
all our imaginations, who can filter through all our motives and know what's really lurking in these hearts of ours, who knows all the deeds we've committed and all the words we've said, who would want to stand before a holy God and say to him, God, I am good enough. You owe me salvation. It's unthinkable. We already confessed this morning in Psalm 30, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? And he does know. We can't stand before him. If you're thinking that somehow God's going to accept you because you're better than other people are, the Bible actually says you're under a curse. That way of thinking, that way of believing is not going to save you. It's going to condemn you. It's impossible for sinful people like you and me to keep the whole law of God. And what God's law requires is 100%. And if you failed in one point, you failed in it all. Some time ago, I heard someone illustrate it like this. Suppose someone was going to give $10 million to anyone who was able to swim from Honolulu to Los Angeles. Just a mere 2,558 miles. And they all jump in the water thinking, I can get the 10 million. Most are at the bottom of the water needing rescue after just a mile. But one woman, an Olympiad, she goes an amazing 215 miles into the ocean. And she says to the benefactor, well, I didn't make it all the way, but can you at least give me a portion of what you promised? And he says, look at how many miles you have left. 2,343 miles. You're not even close. And that's how far we can get in saving ourselves from our sins. We can't even get close to what's required. But God is able and willing to freely save sinners who trust in his son. That's the gospel. And when you believe this gospel message, it has a profound impact on the way you view yourself and the way you view other people. I mean, for instance, when you really believe you're a sinner saved by grace, it frees you from this anger, this grumpiness, this, this attitude of entitlement that just makes us dissatisfied all the time because we think, I've worked so hard. I deserve a better life than I have. No. Salvation by grace through faith just demolishes that way of thinking. It's, God, you have been so kind to me. You have treated me infinitely better than I deserve. And it changes the way you look at other people. We so often hold other people with contempt in our hearts and look down on them with disdain, maybe because they're lazier than we are or they're not as physically fit as we are or they're from a different religion, or they believe in a different political position or party. And so we, we hold people in disdain for those reasons. That's, that's what the whole world is doing, just looking down on one another with disdain, trying to find the superior perch where you can look down your nose and prove that you are valuable. That's what we boast in. But when you realize I'm a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing about me that I deserve to look on another person with disdain. It also empowers us to forgive people. I heard Tim Keller say the only way you can keep a grudge is if you're sure you are superior to someone else. 
But if you know that God has saved you by grace through faith, there's no superiority there. And you can't keep a grudge. You're compelled to forgive. You see, all boasting is eliminated. When you realize that everything you needed in order to be saved by God was a gift from God. And this becomes your perspective on life now. It's all a gift. God, you have been so good to me. Don't you love people like that, Christians like that, who just have this attitude of thanksgiving and praise all the time because they can't get over how gracious God has been. So if this is true, and it is, that we are saved by grace through faith, not from works, so that no man can boast, does that then mean that our good works are just an optional extra for Christians. In other words, can you take the free ride of salvation, the fast train of salvation all the way to heaven, free, without it making any difference in how you live your life now? And the apostles' answer to that question, the Holy Spirit's answer to that question is, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God wants you to understand very clearly that we are saved by grace apart from works for a life of good works. That's why we were saved. He, he saved us so that we have a life that's filled with purpose to make much of Christ in all we do. We are saved apart from works for a life of good works. But the good works we do as Christians don't in any way give us grounds for boasting because the works that we do as Christians are created by God. And that's what we see in verse 10. Let's read this verse, which begins with the word for, but let's go back to the last phrase of verse 9 and read it together, okay? So look at the end of verse 9. It says, No one can boast for... And here's another reason why the gospel eliminates and annihilates all boasting. The second reason is because we are his workmanship. His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is the second strong pillar supporting the truth that all boasting in the Christian life is annihilated. We have zero grounds for boasting because now that we are saved, everything we need to do to please God is a creation of God. Think about that. Has anyone ever told you you're a piece of work? Not intended to be a compliment, usually. But that's what God is telling us here. Christians, you are a piece of work. You are God's workmanship. That's an amazing word. It's the word poema. It appears only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Romans 1.20, where it speaks of the things that have been made by God in creation. All the wonderful things that we can see and taste and touch and smell and handle these wonderful works of God in creation 
That's who we are now in Christ. It, it's a word, poema, that, that can refer to an epic poem like Homer's Odyssey or Milton's Paradise Lost. What Paul is saying here is you, Christian, are a work of art. You are a masterpiece of God's creative genius. You are God's living and active and multidimensional epic poem. Your life is full of meaning and purpose because you have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, we've already seen that the gospel means that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive and raised us and exalted us and freed us from our captivity. Wonderful truths. But now Paul is taking us to another level. Just as God is the God who brings resurrection from the dead, he's also the God who creates out of nothing. He creates the universe out of nothing. This, this, this verse here, verse 10, is taking us all the way back to Genesis 1 when, when God said, let there be light and, and all the things that he made came into existence. This is what God has done to save us. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he became a pioneer of a new creation and everyone that is united to Jesus Christ now becomes new creation. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Now, it's nonsense to speak of creation without a creator. You cannot create yourself. So John Calvin says, you see then that this word create is enough to stop the mouths and put away the cackling of such as boast of having any merit. For when they say so, they presuppose that they were their own creators. God's saying, stop your cackling about how great you are. You were raised from the dead by God. You were released from your captivity by God. And you were made a new creation by God. You couldn't do any of that for yourself. That's the gospel. If you can begin to lay hold of this truth that you are God's epic work of art, you are God's masterpiece, it will fill your life with a sense of purpose and meaning. It's a beautiful passage from an article by John Bloom that I just want to read for you now. Just let this sink in a little bit. Tiny, insignificant you are more glorious than the sun and more fascinating than Orion. For the sun cannot perceive its creator's power in its own blinding glory, nor can Orion trace his designer's genius in the precision of his heavenly course. But you can. You are part of the infinitesimal fraction of created things that have been granted the incredible gift of being able to perceive the power and native genius of God. You can know God the way the sun cannot. And to you, and you only, is given a wholly unique perception 
and experience of God's holy grand poema, his epic poem. There are some verses in God's epic poem that he will show only to you. What kind of being are you, so small and weak, and yet endowed with such marvelous capacity for perception and wonder? So God hasn't recreated us in Christ so that we can twiddle away our lives in trivialities and in vanity and in nonsense. God hasn't made us a new creation in Christ so that we can just live for our own pleasure and be on the fast track to heaven. No, he has created us in Christ so that our lives will be transformed, so that we will bear the fruit of the Spirit and do good works that only a Christian could do in this world. God has recreated us in Christ for a life of obedience and a life of praise to God and a life of blessing to our communities. And we know our labor is not in vain as we sang this morning. And what Paul wants us to understand is nothing that you do for God as a Christian should give you cause to boast. Nothing that you do, none of your good works, none of the service you perform should cause you to feel like, wow, look at me. It should all cause you to be amazed with wonder at the grace that God has shown you in making you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And God really wants us to get this. So he adds one phrase at the end of verse 10 that almost seems redundant. You almost wonder if it needed to be there. Would it have been enough for Paul to just say, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works? We'd be like, amen, I love it. I'm God's epic poem. I'm his work of art. I'm his masterpiece. But, but Paul is so intent on annihilating boasting that he adds this phrase, good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So not only were we predestined for adoption as sons in God's family, but even the good works that we do were predetermined by God and arranged by God, which means that your good works are actually his good works in you. We used to be walking according to the ways of this world. In verse 2, we're swept along with the tide, but now God has set our feet on a new road to travel. He's given us a new assignment, a new way to walk. And because each of us is a unique creation of God, God has a special purpose that he has prepared just for you as a believer. God has a blueprint. God has a design. God has a musical score that he has composed, and he has arranged a part for you to play in his magnum opus of redemption. He's got a few lines in his great epic poem that he has designated for you and for you alone to perform. No one else has those lines. No one else gets to play that role. And that means there's nothing about your life, Christian, that's insignificant. Every little detail matters to God. God has prepared every good work he will do in advance for you. And that should cause us to be full of wonder. 
if you're feeling a little bit bored with your life right now, if you're feeling listless about your purpose, take this to heart and marvel at God's amazing creative work in making you a new creation in Christ Jesus and realize God has an amazing purpose for your life. It might feel mundane, but to God, it matters for eternity. G.K. Chesterton said, we are perishing for want of wonder, not want of wonders. In other words, there's plenty to wonder at. There's plenty to be amazed at when you think about this gospel. There's no lack of wonders. We're perishing for want of wonder. Wonder at what God has done in making you his work of art, his masterpiece. So I've been thinking about this this week. It's encouraged me that I don't have to worry so much trying to figure out where God wants me to be and what God wants me to do and how am I going to do it and how am I going to get it done because God is perfectly able to get me where he wants me to be, when he wants me to be there, and to give me the ability and the strength I need to do what he's prepared for me to do. It's all about him working in and through me. All I need to do is be filled with wonder at who he is. I need to surrender to the shaping role of the Holy Spirit in my life because I'm God's workmanship. I'm God's epic work of art. I'm God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for me to do. I love this question from Kent Hughes. What does this privileged position of being God's work of art require of us? Answer, two things. One is to believe it. For simple belief that this is true will lift you from the prison of despair when you wonder if your life has any significance. Believe it. But the second thing you need to do is hold still. Don't be like a two-year-old in the barber's chair, squirming so much you never get the care you need and your haircut comes out looking really bad. Instead, submit yourself to the authority of God's word and surrender to the shaping influence of his spirit in your life. And he's going to take care of making your life a beautiful testimony to his amazing grace. Everything we needed before we were saved to be saved by God was a gift from God. So you have zero grounds for boasting there. And everything you need to do now that you have been saved to live a life pleasing to God, it's all a creation of God working in you. So you've got zero grounds for boasting there. So where should we boast? In whom should we boast? May we never boast except in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross for us.